Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. In uh, the hymn that we sang earlier, there is a turn of a phrase that uh, I have uh, used often with people, and uh, that is a, a frowning providence. Did you, did you catch that? Behind the frowning providence is the smile of God. But the problem is when we are in the middle of something that's going on that seems like a frowning providence, it's really hard to see the smile of God or even remember that it's there. What about in your life? Is there, is there something where you have to ask yourself, where is God in this? Now, a couple of weeks ago, I asked you a different version of the same question. And we looked at how God speaks to us, sometimes loudly, sometimes we can barely hear him, and sometimes he's silent. And as we continue on through the book of Acts, I I want us today to, to focus on this passage and to see another little glimpse of how God works in providential today circumstances, not so much what he says, but what he does. And I want to give you a principle, and the principle is this. This is not new to you if you've been here for any length of time. You've heard me say this. Everything and everyone in your life is there to make you more like Jesus. Everyone and everything you face in your life is there to make you more like Jesus. That's if you are a child of the living God. That's the case. God uses circumstances and he uses people to make us who he wants us to be. And we're going to see that with the Apostle Paul in this passage. Uh, We're going to refer to really the entire chapter, but I'm going to read just the first 12 verses if you'll follow along with me. Acts 25. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and they urged him asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, Let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had uh, come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many 
and serious charges against him that they could not prove. (coughs) Paul argued in his defense. (coughs) I'm just, I'm going to say, excuse me once today. I've been fighting a little bit of a cold and uh, so rather than every time I cough. So if you'll pardon me, I am going to get a drink of water here which I know makes everybody thirsty when they see that. Let's, uh, <clears throat> let's go back to 6. After he stayed among them not more than 8 or 10 days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. <clears throat> Paul argued in his defense neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to these charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you've appealed? To Caesar you shall go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for recording your word for us. This passage is just one more event in Paul's life, but you saw fit to save it for us so we could read it today, so we could draw truth from the truth that you preserved. And so will you teach us, and then, Lord, especially, will you, will you help us as we seek to apply this to our lives, both here and <clears throat> later on in community groups? Lord, we look to you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let's take a look at uh, these circumstances, and I know it's kind of hard to follow, especially with a big cough in the middle and breaking up all, all that. But, uh, but in terms of what was taking place, you remember that, that Paul uh, was basically Im- imprisoned. And he knew, because God had told him, that he was, in essence, working his way toward Rome. I- I'm sure he had no, no idea how he was going to get there. But he knew that that was his destination. <clears throat> so take a look at, uh, first of all, what we see in uh, chapter 24, verse 27. There's a long wait in here. Now, we can just read over a verse, but look what it says, verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. 
Paul was, is held captive uh, in Caesarea for two years. Now, now think about Paul and the kind of guy he was. Paul, Paul was a man of action. He was what some of us might call, you know, you can always look back and analyze people psychologically, and it's probably never very accurate, but I think most of us would agree that he was a driver. He was, uh, he was that high D or the type A uh, personality. He was going to get it done. And um, so now all of a sudden, boom, it stops. It doesn't taper off. He didn't know retirement was coming and began preparing for that. It stopped. And he had work to do. He had lots of things he knew he wanted uh, to accomplish. He was passionate. And he was, he was a, uh, you know, that type A personality before he came to Christ. And, and he put that into to wrongdoings from our perspective to persecuting the church and stopping the gospel. And then, then uh, uh, Christ got a hold of him, gave him a new heart. And that same personality he used impassioned for the gospel to forward it, to move it on, to share it not only with his people, but with the Gentiles. And then that came to a stop. Let's get some perspective here. I'll often have somebody come to me and say, you know, I've been praying about this thing for a long time. Really, tell me about it. How, how long have you been praying? Well, I've been praying like every day for the last two weeks. And, and it's been... Now think about that. <laughs> what is a long time? Well, what was going on in your life two years ago, February of 2012? How much has changed in your life since then? What if from that moment until now, you had basically been waiting, held captive? It's a long time. What could have been going through Paul's mind? What good am I doing here? But we see no bitterness. None of that's recorded. We don't see resentment. Instead, he learned more what it is to be patient. He learned what it is to be content. And he learned to wait on God's timing. That goes against our grain and our age. I mean, we are, and I'm I'm including myself with this, we are the ones that stand by the microwave saying, come on, come on, you know. <laughs> or your, you know, your, complu- uh, your computer slows down. And how frustrating is that? It's just going round and round, you know, it's not. And, you know, a few years ago, we, we didn't even have those things. We were doing the dial-up, you know, the, to get online. And so on. And yet we want things instantly. 
And even though Paul was living in a different day, I suspect that that his personality wanted that as well. So there's that circumstance. And then we see him enduring false accusations. Felix is succeeded by Festus, um, who didn't know the charges against Paul. So the chief priests, leading men of the Jews, went to him uh, with their charge. And it says this, verse 7. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, <clears throat> bringing many, uh, many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Now here is Paul. And he's put in a hard place because it's basically he's, he's standing alone. No one at this point is coming to his defense. It's his word against theirs. And it says this, verse 8, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar. Have I committed any offense? <clears throat> But that being the case, he still had this circumstance of being under false accusations. And if you've ever been under false accusations, you know how frustrating that is. And imagine being under a false accusation and not having anyone else stand up for your defense. Not really having any proof other than your word where you know you haven't done anything. And if you've been there, you know how frustrating that is. And then we see another circumstance here. He was being used by others. Paul became basically a a political football here. In uh, chapter 24, verse 27, it says, When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor. Catch that phrase, desiring to do the Jews a favor. Felix left Paul in prison. He was a political pawn. You know, he's trying to, uh, um, he's trying to advance himself, and he's using Paul and leaving him in prison to try to advance himself. Then in chapter 25, verse 3, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush to kill him on the way. So, uh, again, a favor is being asked, verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? So, you you see that phrase over and over again, wishing to do them a favor. He's, He's trying to keep peace and trying to keep uh, the the Jews from criticizing him, being unhappy under him, and so on, being a bad reflection. And that's that's two different uh, people, Felix and Festus. They're trying to they're taking advantage of Paul because he's helpless. He can't really do anything uh, while he is there, and they use him for political purposes. Public opinion was so strong that Paul became a a valuable commodity. And again, Paul's standing alone. These are all things that will form Paul into who God 
wanted him to be. He's standing alone. He used his right to appeal to Caesar. Festus replied, well, then to Caesar you'll go. He's glad to get him elsewhere. There's a fourth circumstance that Paul had to deal with. And that's facing a future that is uncertain at best. Now, I'm not going to read the last half of the chapter. I would encourage you to read it, uh, verses 13 through 22. But in that section, let me just tell you what you'll find. Uh, Festus had said that he'd send Paul to Caesar. He actually turned him over to two other people, King Agrippa and Bernus. Sounds harmless, right? <laughs> well, these, these are truly godless people. They were actually brother and sister living as husband and wife openly. That's how godless they were. They're hearing a story about Paul that had been twisted by his false accusers. And think about what, what would be some of the questions maybe... Paul would have to ask, or what, what would you ask if you were in that? I know I'd, I'd be asking the question, who really is in charge of my life and my circumstances? It seems like they're going from bad to worse. Who's in charge here? Now, if Paul ever thought that, we don't know. But if he ever thought that uh, Festus was in charge or King Agrippa and Bernus were in charge, I suspect he would, he would have lost all hope. He would have said, well, it's hopeless then. If these people that I'm, I'm seeing here are really in charge of my life, like it looks like, then I'm in a hopeless situation. But I'm convinced that Paul understood that there was a sovereign God who was in control. And though he might at this point be looking at a frowning providence, that behind that is a God who is smiling, not at his suffering, but because his will is being done in a gracious way, even though Paul couldn't see it. He couldn't possibly know how it would all work out. Maybe there was another question. Who should I trust? You tend to trust the one that's in charge. Ask yourself that in, in terms of, of your life. Who, who should you be trusting? Well, you, you want to trust somebody who's in charge. So look, if, if you're in charge then trust yourself. But I will tell you this. If God's in charge, you need to trust him. If you think you're in control, at some point, something will take place in your life which will teach you that control is just an illusion. If you think you're in control, something will show you this is out of control. It's out of my hands. 
It's just an illusion. I thought I was in control before. Now I know that I never was. Now let's think about God's purposes as we try to apply this. I gave you the principle earlier. Everything and everyone in your life is there to make you more like Jesus. If you are a child of the living God, if you are a believer, if you're trusting in Christ alone for your eternal life, everything and everyone is there to make you more like him. Um, On Wednesday evening, I'm teaching a, a course we call Theology 101. And at the beginning, every time I teach that course, I uh, give a verse out because I think it's important in terms of theology to uh, keep this verse as kind of an umbrella of, of, of perspective. And the verse is Deuteronomy 29, 29. <clears throat> so I'm giving you that verse too. It says this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of His law. Now the reason I give that out in the theology class is that um, He has revealed His will. He's revealed what He wants us to know. But there are things that we, we will come to a wall and we won't be able to see beyond that wall or get over it or get around it. And behind that wall is the answer. But on this side of the wall is a mystery. And we can't, we can't quite see why God is doing that. Or how this theological concept fits with this one. We just know both of them are revealed But at some point, there is a mystery. Well, it's the same in terms of looking at how God is working. That sometimes, although I'd say this is rather rare, sometimes when we are in difficult circumstances, we can look and we can say, well, this is how it's helping me grow. This is what it's doing in my life. This is, you know, and and we can say, yeah, these circumstances are here, they're I think they're to to make me more like Jesus, and here's how it's happening. Once in a while, that's the case, but often we can't figure that out. Because God is God, and he has that prerogative. He doesn't have to tell us anything. He didn't have to tell us everything he did. But he has shown us so much about his character. That's why Cooper could say, and I think under the tutelage of Newton, as Mark was saying, that's why he could say there is is a smiling God, the smile of God behind this frowning providence. Though all I can see is the frown at this point. Now, I want to bring in what almost sounds like a different subject, but, but stay with me because I don't, I don't believe it is. What about God's discipline? Could it be that Paul was being disciplined by God and, and that's why he was going through all of these difficult circumstances? It's a tough question, but... I have to believe Paul would have asked it. And I hear us asking that 
often. And I want to tell you what, what my answer would be to that. Yes, he was being disciplined. Now that might surprise you. But I want to tell you why I believe that's the case. And a lot of it has to do with how, how I would define, and I believe the Bible defines discipline. And I think sometimes we make a mistake in the way we define uh, how God disciplines us. Probably the easiest place to go for that is Hebrews 12. And let me read to you what it says about the discipline of the Lord. Beginning in verse 5 in Hebrews 12, it says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as, as sons? Remember, it's starting out by talking about you've got a relationship here with God. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. You following the argument here? You're, you're experiencing discipline because you are a child of God. And if, if you aren't experiencing discipline, then you must... You must be illegitimate. Besides this, verse 9, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. See the parallel with everything we go through is to make us more like Jesus. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. That's the goal. For the the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so I ask again, was Paul being disciplined? Let me explain why I would say yes. And, And by the way, I want you to be very careful with this. Because... If somebody's going through a trial, you don't want to lead with, well, God's disciplining you. Because it takes some explanation what his discipline really is. Let's explain it. Let's look at at what it is. With Paul, his circumstances did not mean necessarily that he had done something wrong. Number one, God disciplines us for our good. Our good is our holiness. And if you don't value holiness or righteousness or peace, you will not be open to discipline. You will rebel against it. But if you see what I'm going through is to make me more like Jesus, holiness then you say, I, I, I still don't ask for this, but, but God's using it to chisel me into what I need to be. But certainly if we don't value holiness, we will not welcome discipline. 
Number two, we are disciplined because we are his children. He won't discipline us if we're not. And if you never experience discipline, then you need to ask yourself, am I even related to him? Does he even care enough to, to form me into what he wants me to be? You know, those of you that played sports, you, you know, most coaches make this speech at some point. Don't worry if I, you know, if, if I keep correcting you over and over again. That's a nice way to put it, you know. When you need to worry is if I, if I quit doing that. Because that means I don't care. And, and I've given up on you. There is a parallel there. He cares so much. He wants us to be more and more conformed to the image of his son. But this is the key, this part of why I think he was being disciplined, and we rightfully say that, is that discipline is not punishment. We tend to think of it as punishment. And so we'll say things like, uh, well, what did he do to deserve that? And that, that question reflects a misunderstanding of God's discipline. We may be trying to make it too parallel with our parenting styles. In other words, we tend to think, I will discipline this child when the child steps out of line. But I think we should broaden what discipline is. I think the scripture does. That every time we instruct a child in a loving way, every time we warn them, every time we teach them, every time we correct them, all of those are discipline. Not just when we punish them. And so it is with God. And so it is with the church. We as a church are to practice discipline but it is our view that every time I preach, discipline is being practiced. Every time the Word of God is taught rightfully, discipline is being practiced. And it's positive. It's not a negative thing. Real discipline is much more encompassing. And so back to the question, was Paul being disciplined? Do you see why I would say, yes, I think he was. But it wasn't because he had stepped out of line. It wasn't because he had done something wrong. It was because God loved him so much that he wanted to make him into who he wanted him to be. And all of these circumstances and all of those people were doing that work of God. God uses his word. He uses sickness. He uses pain. He uses circumstances like we see with Paul. He sometimes even uses Satan as he did with Job. And most of you have heard my testimony that I call lessons from a heart attack. I think that was a part of his discipline. Not so much as far as I know that I had done something wrong so he was going to punish me with a heart attack. But instead, I, I see it as a wonderful gift that he gave to me. 
that gave me perspectives that I just didn't understand until he gave me that experience. And that's how we look at it. So your life. What is going on in your life where you might have thought, what have I done to deserve this? Or maybe thought, I'm tired of waiting. Or maybe you've been unfairly treated or used. Or maybe you just want to know your future and it's uncertain. Who do you believe is in charge? And who will you trust? Know this, that we cannot always figure out what God is up to. But we can know that everything and everyone in our lives is there to make us more like Jesus. Remember the book of Daniel? You had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they stood against King Nebuchadnezzar, stood for righteousness. They were told they had to bow down to him. They said, we can't do that. We won't do that. And so they had to face the fiery furnace. What strengthened them in the face of the fiery furnace? It was an unbending knowledge of who was in control. Listen to the balance of what they said in Daniel 3. He says, they say, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace said, if we, if we get thrown in there, he can deliver us. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Now, that's the one. That's trusting that he is able. But the other side is this. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You see what they were saying? God's in control. If he wants to rescue us, he will rescue us. But if he chooses not to rescue us, he's still in control. And we will not bow. That's what the answer was. After the teaching in Hebrews 12 about discipline, it says this. Therefore, and some of you may feel this way, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. That's our hope. Our hope is that regardless of what it looks like on this side of that frowning providence, that there is a smiling God who loves us so much that he will use these circumstances to make us who he wants us to be. Let's bow together. Father, there are people in this room that are going through difficult circumstances. And no doubt there are some that all they can see is the frowning providence. Will you give them at least a glimpse of your smile upon them? 
Will you encourage them? Will you help them to know that it is you that's in control and not their boss and not their doctors and not whatever else is in the middle of these difficulties, but it's you. And that whatever the circumstance, you will use it to make us more like Jesus. Will you open our hearts to that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.